Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. As you recall, last week we read this passage and I made a few comments on it, but today we'll be directing our attention specifically to this narrative of Jesus' blessing and welcoming the little children to him. So Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As I mentioned last week, this narrative and the parable that we considered last week, this parable about self-righteousness with the Pharisee and, and the tax collector praying in the courts of the temple, uh, these two passages are very closely connected. And last week, that parable, that parable of self-righteousness, was set up very nicely by Luke. Uh, Luke told us in, in verse 9 that this parable were for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It was a parable for the self-righteous. And in the historical context, Jesus is seeking to indict the Pharisees. In fact, the person in the parable who is the self-righteous person is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were those who looked down upon the tax collectors, the sinners of society as, as being definitively unworthy of God and of his people. But it wasn't just the Pharisees that Jesus had in mind. He also had the disciples in mind. He was indicting the disciples in this parable as well. And the reason why I say that is Luke places this narrative after that parable for a reason. And the reason is to show that the disciples also are indicted in this self-righteous contempt. How? and what they were doing in this narrative. In this narrative, we read that parents were bringing children, and actually infants, that's the word that's used here, very, very small children, infants, to Jesus that he might touch them. Now, in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 10, we read that Jesus is actually blessing this child, these children. So this touch is, is a blessing that he's pronouncing upon these infants. And the disciples are witnessing this, and they're, they're a little outraged. What are, you, what are you parents doing wasting Jesus' time? He has much more important things to be doing than to be blessing infants. The disciples are guilty of self-righteous contempt, just like the Pharisees were. And in response, Jesus welcomes the children and gives us a glimpse into his view of of children, even infants. He loves the little children. Jesus loves the little children. And 
In so doing, he's also calling us, calling the disciples to embrace his view of children within, within the church, within the covenant community. Now in verse 16, we see Jesus' main response, which comes as an implicit rebuke to the disciples. And he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now that last phrase is key. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. That phrase is really the, the crux of the passage in terms of interpretation. What is Jesus saying? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Is he saying it's actually for literal infants, or is it just for those who have a childlike faith? Are these infants just simply a metaphor of the faith that we're all called to possess? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Well, I'd like to, us to consider, and my argument uh, this, this morning is that Jesus is telling us here that the kingdom of God belongs both to literal and metaphorical children or infants. The kingdom of God belongs to both literal and metaphorical children. So first, let's consider how Jesus is saying that the kingdom, his kingdom, belongs to actual literal children, infants. So again, as I mentioned, uh, Jesus is blessing these children. He's welcoming them into his presence. And the disciples rebuke these parents. Get away from Jesus. This is an extraordinary rabbi and teacher. He can't be wasting his time on, on blessing children or with blessing children. And Jesus then in response welcomes them. And notice the ground he gives for welcoming them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. The straightforward reading of what Jesus is saying seems to be that these infants belong to the kingdom. And that's why he welcomes them. That's why he blesses them. That's why the disciples shouldn't shoo them away. As I mentioned, these, uh, these children are infants. That is to say, they're not 12, 14, 15-year-olds who, who've come to hear of Jesus, are professing their faith, and wanting to, wanting to receive a blessing from him. These are infants. Completely passive, not cognizant of what's happening. And the parents are bringing them to Jesus to be blessed. And these parents likely are, are Jews, members of, of the covenant community at that time in, in Israel. And so the, the straightforward reading of the text would seem to be that Jesus is saying that these infants are members of the kingdom and thus they shouldn't be refused. Well, whenever we come across uh, or come to an interpretation, usually a, a straightforward interpretation of a particular passage, we should ask ourselves, does that interpretation coincide with the rest of Scripture? Or does it contradict the rest of Scripture? Because if it contradicts the rest of Scripture, it's a pretty good sign that we probably are off the mark. But if it coincides with the rest of Scripture, that's a good indication that we're on the right track. And so I'd like us to briefly consider here, does this straightforward reading of verse 16, that Jesus is saying that literal infants are members of his kingdom, does this coincide with the rest of Scripture or contradict the rest of Scripture? I'd like to dwell a few, uh, to a few moments on, on, on this issue, especially in, in relation to the rest of Scripture. So back in Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, God comes to the patriarch Abraham, the great father of the people of faith. 
And he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your children. That's an extraordinary verse. What, what we learn there is that God is establishing an everlasting covenant with Abraham. Boys and girls, an everlasting covenant, what does everlasting mean? It doesn't end. It continues on, which means that we still are under the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant is merely a continuation of that ancient covenant that was made with Abraham. This covenant is everlasting. And the great promise of this everlasting covenant is that God will be a God to us and to our children. Meaning, this everlasting covenant includes children, the children of believers. As you continue to read on in your Old Testament, we come across many prophecies in which the prophets are speaking about the coming messianic age when this kingdom that Jesus is bringing will come. And the prophets speak often about how blessings, these new covenant kingdom of God blessings will continue to come to children. You see this in Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 54, even Joel 2, when, when God is renewing his covenant with his people, he consecrates everybody, even the nursing infants, and it's in that context that he gives these, these promises of this coming kingdom of God. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, we have the passage that we're considering today and the parallel passages in Mark and, and Matthew, but then in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's poured out his spirit upon his church. And Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And he's announcing to these Jews who are present before him, repent and be baptized for the promise is for you and for your children. What promise? Well, yes, the promise of the spirit, but more broadly, that ancient promise given to Abraham. What Peter is saying there would have signaled to these first century Jews that that covenant made with Abraham is indeed everlasting. And that great promise in this everlasting covenant continues on. I will be a God to you and to your children. These Jews would have thought, God is continuing with this paradigm. This paradigm, this, this promise that he gave to our, to our forefather Abraham. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is dealing with the issue of mixed marriages in the New Testament church. And that was a big issue in the New Testament church because uh, many Gentiles are being included into, into the church. This is missionary context as the kingdom is continuing to expand to nations outside of, or lands outside of Jerusalem and Palestine. As a consequence, sometimes these pagan uh, couples, one would convert and one wouldn't. And so you'd have a mixed marriage, and the believing spouse would oftentimes be concerned about their children. And if I believe, but my spouse doesn't believe, my spouse is still in pagan idolatry, what does, that, what does that mean for my children? Are they unclean? And Paul in response says, no. For they're made holy by the faith of one or more parents. One or two parents. Now what does that mean? Not that they're saved. It means that they have the privilege of growing up in the covenant community, growing up hearing the word preached, 
being catechized, something that a child in a pagan home does not receive. They're made holy, they're set apart, they're distinguished. And one other reference in the New Testament that we see is Paul in both Ephesians and Colossians specifically addresses children in his epistles. For example, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, as you know, these, these, these epistles would have originally been written and sent to the, the, the church that Paul was writing to. And they would have been read in the public assembly of God's people and then distributed to other local congregations and then read publicly in corporate worship. And one of my uh, former professors did his doctoral and PhD work on the first century town of Ephesus. And he's written, a, subsequently has written a commentary on the book of Ephesians, which is very helpful in bringing out some of the historical background of that book. And some comments that he makes on Ephesians chapter 6 are very, very insightful. He, he, he talks about how countercultural it would have been for Paul to specifically address children in the worship service, or in this letter, and then subsequently in the worship service. Why? Because in the Greco-Roman culture, children did not have the respect or dignity to be addressed in public. And furthermore, the fact that it's children, meaning both boys and girls, would also would have been countercultural. Greco-Roman culture, girls oftentimes were shut up in the home until they were of, uh, they could be married. They wouldn't go out to public assemblies. And then notice that Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord. You look at the use of that phrase, that's language of belonging, belonging to a kingdom, belonging to the church, belonging to the covenant. And in context, Paul has been addressing every demographic of the church, husbands, wives, Bond servants, masters, fathers, and now children. Thus it seems, according to Paul, that children are members of the church, members of the kingdom, members of God's people. And thus, as we come back to verse 16 of, of Luke chapter 18, and we want to ask ourselves, okay, does that straightforward reading of the text, meaning when Jesus says, for such belongs the kingdom of God, does he really mean literal infants belong to his kingdom? I think he does. I think the rest of scripture testifies to that reality, both in the Old Testament and in, and in the New Testament. God continues to be a God to us and to our children. He continues to work through the family. Now, what does it mean for an infant to be, belong to God's people, to belong to the kingdom? Does it mean that they're saved by virtue of their parents' faith? By virtue of receiving a sign of circumcision or baptism? No, not at all. They themselves still have to personally profess their own faith when they come to an intelligible age. So what does it mean for an infant to belong to God's kingdom? Well, it means that they have the privilege of being raised in the covenant community. They have the privilege of hearing the word of God preached and taught to them from the very youngest of ages. They have the privilege of being catechized in the Christian faith. And thus, never, Lord willing, knowing a day apart from, apart from Christ. Never being able to, to remember, remember the first time they were taught the gospel. 
That's something that a child in a pagan home does not receive. That's the main difference. They're set apart in that they experience the blessings of belonging to the kingdom and hearing the word preached. If you think of a child's heart as a fire pit, a covenant child has the privilege and the blessing of both in the home and in the church, people laying kindling upon that fireplace over and over and over, day in and day out, week in and week out, through catechesis, through instruction and through teaching. Now the church nor the family can ignite a spark on that kindling. That's the job of the Spirit. And it's something we pray for and ask the Lord to do in His timing according to His will. That's not, that's not something you and I can do. All we can do is lay kindling upon the fire pit of the heart and pray that the Spirit would ignite it. However, a child being raised in a pagan home, the fire pit of their heart is just a bare floor. There's no kindling that's being laid upon it. So that's the main difference. That's the main benefit of belonging to the kingdom is that they have the privilege of hearing and receiving the means that the Lord uses to ignite the spark of faith. Now, what's the relevance of this? Jesus saying, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Literal infants are members of his kingdom. What's the relevance of, of this? Well, the relevance of this is that it has to do with who receives the sign of baptism. Now, both Baptist and Pado-Baptist, and Pado-Baptist means uh, it refers to those who believe that infants should receive the sign of baptism. Both agree that only members of the church, only members of the kingdom, should receive the sign of the kingdom. And so really the more fundamental issue is membership in, in the kingdom. Who's the prop, who are the proper members of God's kingdom and thus should receive, and who should receive the sign of initiation into that kingdom? And so if one grants this paradigm that God works through families, that God continues to include the children of believers into his people, his kingdom and his covenant, then it should necessarily follow that they should receive the sign and seal of that membership. The sign of inclusion into that community. Baptism doesn't save. It's a sign and seal of belonging. A sign and seal of God's promises. This is why we see in Acts, the book of Acts, that household formula of baptism repeated. Most of the baptisms in Acts are household baptisms. Someone believes and they and their household are baptized. Same exact phraseology that's used in the Old Testament. Well, I grew up in a, I mentioned this before, I grew up in a, a, a Baptist in a very Roman Catholic area of the Midwest. And as a consequence, I was brought up to thinking that believer-only baptism was as sure, as certain as the fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But it wasn't until I was exposed more to the broader Christian tradition that I started to realize that in, in evangelical Protestantism, we are taught to, to see radical discontinuity between the two testaments. And that's due to various influences in the last hundred years, but that's sort of 
the, the mode of interpretation that, uh, that, we're taught, that we're taught to interpret scripture with, especially in, within evangelicalism. And one thing that Reformed theology gives us, which I think is such a benefit, is being able to see continuity between, script, between the Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. Of course, there's discontinuity. Everyone acknowledges that. But how do we see continuity? How do we see those, those, those little red lines of, of continuity that stretches between all of these dis seemingly disparate texts? You think of justification by faith. When Paul is unpacking justification by faith, he doesn't say that this is some new novel doctrine that just comes onto the scene in, after Jesus comes. No, he says, actually, Abraham was saved the same way. David was saved the same way. Moses was saved the same way. There's one plan of salvation, whether you're Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, the apostles, or us today. And that's another fundamental paradigm that we see span, uh, um, um, going across both Testaments, is this paradigm that God is a God to us and to our children. God is a God to us and to our children. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that being revoked. That is a fundamental paradigm that we see spanning both Testaments. And oftentimes we may say or hear, well, you know, there's no explicit verse that says, Baptize a baby. And there isn't. There's no explicit verse that says you shall baptize babies. But when we look at all of the scriptural evidence, I think there's a pretty good case for it. And furthermore, if we apply that same logic to all of our doctrines, we'd very quickly deconstruct our Christian faith. Our scriptures did not come to us in the form of a systematic theology or a church order or a liturgy. However helpful that may have been, it came in the form of historical narrative apocalyptic literature, poetry, epistles written to historical churches. And what we now have to do is piece together from all of these different genres and texts written over thousands of years doctrine that applies to all people in all times and place. And so, of course, many of our doctrines are going to come from many different strands of, 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 of Scripture because of how it comes to us. So Jesus here is saying... For such belongs the kingdom of God, that these infants whom he's blessing, they belong to the kingdom. They belong to the kingdom, and they're proper recipients of, of his blessing. Well, I'd also like to consider briefly here how Jesus also is saying that the kingdom is for those who receive it like a child. So the, the kingdom belongs to metaphorical children or infants. So if you look with me in your Bibles at verse 17, we read this. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So here he's pointing to children as a metaphor for faith. Receiving it like a child. And there's an analogy here with the Beatitudes. So remember uh, the Beatitude that Jesus uses when he says, blessed in Luke's gospel, he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But then in Matthew's gospel, he says, well, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
You ask yourself, well, which one is it? Does Jesus mean blessed are those who are literally poor circumstantially, or is he just saying that, that literal poverty is a metaphor for the poverty of the soul? Which one is it? Well, I think it's both. He's saying, first of all, that a poverty, of soul, a poverty of the soul is the only way in which we gain access to the saving benefits of the kingdom. But he's also saying that the kingdom is not just for the rich. It's also for those who are literally poor. This democratization of, of the kingdom is for every type of person. And furthermore, oftentimes the Lord uses literal poverty and sufferings to create within us that poverty of the soul. Thus, Jesus is doing a similar thing with this idea of children. Yes, he's talking about literal children here, but he's also presenting children and infants as model citizens of the kingdom. <clears throat> children here, infants, are presented as model citizens of the kingdom of God. How so? Well, think about an infant, for instance. They are completely dependent upon their mother, upon their parents, so much so that, apart from them, they would literally die. And that's meant to teach us the nature of faith. When we profess faith, what we're doing is we're renouncing our autonomy. We're acknowledging that we are like infants before God. Even more so, that apart from His sustaining grace, we physically would cease to exist. Apart from Christ's intercession on our behalf, we would perish from the wrath of God. Apart from the Spirit's presence in our lives, we would no doubt depart from the faith. This is why we begin every service with that invocation. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, from where does your help come from? This is the confession of the people of faith. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is who we are as the people of faith. We so often struggle to live according to this reality. We so, we so often think that we're full-functioning, autonomous, independent adults before God when really we're infants. Failure to recognize this is what leads to so much anxiety and fear in our life because we, we want to take upon ourselves the control seat of our life. But we're infants. Thus, every time we see children, every time we see infants in, in church, it's a reminder of the type of faith we're called to live according to, the type of faith we're called to nurture within our life. Well, faith also, I mean, children also are model citizens in, in their passive reception of, of the kingdom. Notice here, Jesus blesses these infants not because of their initiation or their decision. They're bringing, being brought there freely by their parents. Completely passive. And thus, justifying faith also is passive. In the sense that we're just resting, we're just receiving Christ as he's offered to us. As we thought about last week in the, our catechism service, we're sitting upon the chair of Christ. That's what we're doing. It's Christ who, are, who is our salvation. Christ who is our representative. Christ who is our righteousness and our forgiveness. And faith is merely the instrument by which we grab hold of him. And thus, children, infants, are a living illustration of the type of faith we are called to, the type of faith we are called to nurture. 
So when Jesus says here in verse 16, for such belongs the kingdom of God, he has in mind both these literal infants he's blessing and he's propping up these infants as model citizens, model examples to all of the covenant community of the type of faith we are called to embrace. So congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see here in this passage that Jesus indeed loves the little children. And we too are called to embrace uh, this view as well. So let us pray.